Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ritu Verma, a co-founder and managing partner at Anchor. I tried again. Anchor Capital to the show. Dr. Verma, it's great to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on the show and excited to be here. It is my pleasure. Before we get into the main part of the conversation, I'd love to give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. You know, as you mentioned, I'm actually uh, part of the founding Angkor Capital and in uh, knee deep or neck deep right now in running Angkor Capital. So that's what I do for my day and night job at this point. <laughs> but uh, that's not how I started out. So I actually started life out as a physicist. So I have a PhD in physics, um, went on to sort of uh, work at a large multinational, starting out in the R&D parts of the company, but moving towards actually getting stuff out into the market. So one of the things I realized I was super interested in how uh, you know, new innovations make it to market. And that sort of pushed my journey from being an academic into what I would call applied research into actually the front end of a business and getting things uh, on shelves here. So I did, you know, move cross continents with that company, uh, ended up doing an MBA, uh, then going and working um, a little bit in a more technology oriented company, uh, but uh, ultimately just realized that what I was excited about, as I said earlier, getting innovations to market and venture capital was the place that sort of gives you a ringside view of, uh, you know, seeing great things getting built out. And that's kind of how I ended up uh, through a torturous journey at uh, setting up Uncle Capital with my partner. I love it. I want to get back to that in a second. I want to go a little bit before your PhD, and I'll tell you why. When I was in college, I studied Japanese. And mm. sort of the most, like this big shining light up in Vermont for me was this immersive language program that they had at Middlebury. But I couldn't afford it. So I had to go home and work like two jobs over the summer and stuff like that. And in, in my mind, Middlebury is like this quintessential Northeast America, liberal arts, but also great college and university, yeah? But you went there for your undergrad. Do you remember, like, what was that like for you? Are, I presume you're originally from India, yeah? Yes, I am from India. My first foot into the U.S. was Vermont. <laughs> so, again, I want to back up even further. My first really overseas trip from Japan was to Tibet, was to China and Tibet. And I met a guy there who wrote the first Tibetan-Chinese-English dictionary. And I always wondered, like, for him it was very different, right? I always wondered, like, he went to college. I can't remember where he went, but somewhere in the Northeast as well. And I wanted to know, like, what it was like for him going from Tibet, and Tibet's very different than India, right, to the U.S. But what was it like for you? I mean, Vermont is an amazing place, but different in its own right, right? Yep. So I grew up in a large metropolis in India. And since you live in Asia, you must know exactly what that's like. Yep. Um, so landing in Vermont, the year I landed in Vermont, there were more cows. Oh, it was the first year that there were more people than cows. I love it. <laughs> in that state. So, um, you know, uh, but, you know, you're 18. So you, this is all in your stride. This is super exciting. It's an adventure you're on. 
So it's obviously a very different place. I was going to college, you know, I hadn't really seen snow before. Everybody around me skied. Everybody was there to study languages. Right. I wasn't. Right. A majority of the people actually were from the Northeast. Yeah, they were. Though there was a stacking of people from elsewhere. So a million things were different, but it was an adventure. So that was what was great about it. So um, I loved it. Yeah. So again, I look at it. I grew up in Connecticut and Massachusetts, right? So I went to school in Connecticut as well. It wasn't much of a shock for me. I do regret sometimes that I didn't get on a plane and go to California for university, right? (laughs) Right. Because it would have just been a different experience. And I think I would have had a slightly different life. Do you still think about that, that change of coming from a big metropolis in India to Vermont, which like you said, had more cows most of the time than people? It's just small, really small, right? In other words, do you think about that today when you're building some of the stuff that you're building? No, I don't think about it specifically, but I'll tell you that it didn't seem small, right? Really? Perhaps uh, because I think it's an intense phase of your life. Yeah, fair enough. The people around you and... um, there's enough people to hang out with (laughs) and, you know, opportunities and classes and courses and all of that good stuff. So it actually didn't seem small. It seemed intense. You know, I'm grateful for that because I think it gave you a chance to really bond and really build relationships uh, with people, with professors, all of that, which uh, perhaps in a much larger environment and a larger you know, uh, setting is is different, right? Because you've got many things pulling at you, right? right. And um, it go, kind of, if I were to draw a parallel to today, I think it's, you know, when you get into a company and you're starting to build a startup, it's an intense phase, right? Exactly. And you want to shut out the noise of, you know, the million other things going on in our lives. So I think uh, it is great. And that's why people say writers and whatever, you know, flock to these kind of places because it gives you that focus or it gives you that space to, um, you know, dive deeper. Yeah. And actually, this is the point that I really wanted to make. I mean, I went to a small school. There were 1,600 kids, 400 kids in my class in my year. And again, it was super intense. And I think I've dragged that intensity with me through the rest of my life. But it also means that I think a lot about how in small teams to try to figure big things out. Anyway, that was the only point that I was trying to make. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't get this wrong, despite being in Vermont, there were big things happening, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you, know, you spoke about languages, there was a lot of languages happening, and, you know, languages connected with all different parts of the world, and, you know, uh, so it wasn't isolated. No. It just, uh, you know, there is a lot that you can do in a small space. Yeah, and I want to mention one more thing, and then I want to jump back to the future. You know, when I was a kid and when I was in college, I got on a plane and went to Japan for the first time. And I studied at Dosha University in Kyoto, right? And to be fair, Middlebury was part of the 12 college exchange. And there were kids from that school on my program. But the one thing it taught to me was that everything else that I thought I knew may have then been wrong. And it really added to my ability to adapt. And I really think when you go out at an early age from your comfort zone later, when new things come to you, you're just like, sure, I've been doing this my whole life kind of thing. Is that fair? No, absolutely fair, right? There's a lot of adaptation. And, uh, you know, you get to like the adaptation, right? You have to be yeah. open to ideas, open to new people, different ways of doing things, right? One of the biggest things for me was coming out of India and 
uh, I think much of Asia has this, Michael, where it's a very uh, structured education system, yep. right, where it's sort of exam oriented to, you know, landing at this uh, college, which says, you know, go take your exam, take it home with you, go to the library, right, go figure it out. Right. And, you know, you, you realize you're thrown off the cliff to think, yeah. right, and you've got to figure out how to do it. I personally believe I'm good. They drive you to sort of rethink things and, uh, you know, come out of that in a different way. I do too. I want to talk about Anchor now, right? Because through yeah. this whole journey that you've had, it ends up here. And I love the way you say my day job and my night job. It's like a little bit of your own internal sarcasm, like this thing never ends kind of thing, right? <laughs> but I, I love it. Do you feel like along with Anchor, there is this kind of secular change taking place in the way investments are being made? Do you know what I mean? And that impact investment as a thing is now becoming part of every sort of early stage investment business's thesis. You were ahead of this, but do you feel like the world is moving in that direction now? Um, so let me come back to, you used the word impact investing, right? Yeah. And in my journey through Angkor, uh, one of the things I've realized is that this word impact investing is a very broad word and yeah. it means different things to different people. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, there's a lot of silos in sure. where people sit with it all, right? So uh, my apologies. Don't worry uh, about it. I had this on silent. No, but no, we'll just edit it out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. All right. And uh, you know, the funny thing is, sorry, I know you've edited this out, that, you know, you can turn off the call, but the WhatsApp is someplace else. Right. <laughs> right. It's a broad word, right? Yeah. The impact investing uh, you're sort of referring to. But I do think that there is a subtle change in the world. I think globally, uh, you know, uh, people are realizing that, look, we need innovations to make this a better world, yeah. climate, all sorts of issues, right, that we're all uh, going through. And how do we sort of even think about, uh, you know, uh, using technologies or using new age businesses to actually create a better world, you know? And one example I can use is, uh, you know, which is all a heady um, days today is about talking about Web 3.0 and crypto, right. right? But at the heart of that, what lies there is the democratization and each of us kind of owning our own data and being in control over that, as opposed to it, uh, you know, being in a more centralized kind of fashion, right? Yeah. So I think that there is an interest globally for investors to think about businesses and businesses that can have lead to a better world. Do you want to talk about the significance of what I call self-sovereign data, right? So you own your own data. This is a very large topic, right? And I love this too. If you just look at the news about Web3 and about the metaverse, it's really just like monkeys and NFTs, but that's not it at all. That's a head fake, right, no. around what's really happening. I just want to make the point that that's not what it is, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, a hype of the first set of days. And then, you know, as it comes down, there are a lot of benefits of sort sure. of having this technology. Sure, sure, sure. You know, the crazy hypes of today, I think it, the dust will settle for some of the, uh, well, let's say the solutions that can have a larger impact of how all of our information, I think, is being managed across yeah. the world. Not just ours, but for businesses as well. Absolutely. I mean, we're kind of at that point in the Gartner hype cycle for Web3 where hopefully we're just about to fall off that cliff. That's the favorite part. 
Because then everything normalizes when you get down to the bottom of what is it called, like the trough of disillusionment, right? So that's the better part where things start to go, okay, we're going to normalize this now and actually do real things. Yeah, is that fair? Yep, I think so. So talk to me about why you invest at the earliest stages where the most risk is or where I think most of the risk is as opposed to later where I think investing is easier. I'll put that in quotes, right, in relative terms, because you're just investing in growth as opposed to investing in experiments. It's the sheer joy, Michael, <laughs> of it. seeing things, you know, emerge and come out, right? You know, both uh, my partner and I, we started this. I think, as I mentioned to you, I personally was interested and have always been on the sort of getting things into market, the right. early stages. Rama as well had spent a lot of time in her career at actually companies, similar stages and growing them. Yeah. So I think we came from that backdrop to some extent, right? And obviously at some personal level, we enjoyed it. So um, that's why, uh, you know, we got into doing this, right? Having said that, I think that there is a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of new ideas. There's a lot of new ways that entrepreneurs are thinking about this thing. So there is a large opportunity for value creation at this stage. Yeah, for right? sure. So, um, you know, I think from a financial perspective also, it is an opportunity. Yes, it is high risk. I think as you understand what risks that you sit on, and if you can actually de-risk some of that, or assess that in a better way, I think there is an opportunity to also uh, create a lot of value. Do you feel like you can lean on your scientific knowledge and your scientific background to understand better what's happening in this space? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely, every day. You know, this question, I, I get asked this question all the time because I, you know, have a degree in physics and saying, you know, what are you doing here? But I think the one thing that you forget is, you know, people have all these ideas of, I don't know, space flights and atoms and God knows what, right. when you say that you're a physicist, but the one thing that people forget is that the, it is a way of thinking, yes, right? It is an analytical point. way of thinking. It is a way of sort of analyzing things and sort of, you know, coming up with, uh, with solutions because uh, at least as a researcher, again, you don't know what's going to happen, right? You've got to be taking your best guesses as how that could possibly, you know, turn out to be what you want it to be or right. tell you what you wanted to tell you. Same, same thing here. So I feel like I use it every day. Yeah. So. No, it's funny because my question to you as actually wasn't, why are you here? It's just, you must have a huge edge. I think about it for myself as well. People ask me, how did you get into the media business? And I said to them, look, I sat on a trading desk for 15 years and my whole job was analyzing like micro pieces of data in micro moments and then having to make decisions and figure out what to do. And that's what I do now. I listen to you talk to me. It's just like data input. And I have to yeah. figure out what to do next, right? So to me, there's a through line, I think, for everything that we do. And you can't disconnect them, which is why I like to get people's backgrounds. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how big you think this investment opportunity is? We don't even have to put numbers on it, but I think it's more than billions. I think it's in the trillions, something like two and a half to three trillion dollar investment in possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So people talk about 30 trillion. Uh, out there, right? But I mean, you, you're talking about reimagining, uh, you know, many ways on how businesses are done, right? Yeah. Essentially. So I'll give you one example, right? You know, we invest a lot in agriculture. Go right? ahead. So agriculture is obviously the trillions across the globe, right? Sure. We all eat every single day, right? Uh, so it is a business that has been happening for centuries. But 
that doesn't mean that there is a new ways to do this business, right? And there are new ways on how technology can make this a much better, less climate impact, uh, you know, in how we eat. So I think uh, the opportunities are actually very vast. I think it's a very exciting time. There are a lot of things that are the costs of actually becoming, you know, part of the world. So I feel there's a lot of stuff happening today. Do you want to talk a little bit about Captain Fresh and how they're innovating as well? It has to be impressive just sitting in this region, investment from Tiger, investment from Homosan and Akaura-san at, um, at Incubate as well, along with, with you and your team. Maybe we can learn a little bit more about Captain Fresh so people can get a better sense of exactly what's happening in this space. Yeah, Captain Fresh uh, to us is, you know, a classic example of a business that's been going on forever, but uh, not very well, right? I mean, right. in the sense it's super inefficient. If you think about a fish being caught either at open sea or at a, a you know, aquaculture facility, yep. um, you know, the pathway of that fish to our plate uh, in especially around Asia, right? I know that there are markets that are much, much more consolidated. Um, is a tortuous path, right? Changing hands with multiple people, quality degradation, losses, that kind of happen, right? So Captain Fresh is an attempt to use, uh, you know, digital technology to actually be able to map this from farm to a plate. Uh, and, you know, they don't go all the way to plate to sell to us, but I they understand. go to the, the retailers, et cetera, that are selling to us uh, or the hotels, et cetera, that sell to us. But how can you make those losses? And as Uttam likes to say, right, you know, there will be losses, right? This, and this is not a zero loss thing. No. But how can we keep the losses as close to farm as possible? Right. right? right. Then that wastage gets fed, right? So it gets recycled as opposed to thrown in the trash. It gets fed back to the fish Right. is what happens. So how can we make this? most optimal how do consumers get the freshest possible fish the chain is super efficient so i think that's where captain fresh is coming in in uh pulling in technology and using the technology tools that are available today to actually build a predictive um you know running a business that's analyzed on you know where demand is and you know getting the fish to you the fastest way that's possible. Yeah, it's really interesting because when people think about logistics and supply chain, they're generally thinking about cotton into T-shirts into Paris fashion shows. Yeah. But there's, as you said, we eat three times a day or two times a day and everybody does it, rich, poor, or anywhere in the middle, right? Yeah. And the, the impact on society, for lack of a better term, and no pun intended, is just huge. I'd love to have Utam on the Social Innovation Podcast as well to have a longer conversation and learn more about that because I think it would just be super No, absolutely. Super I, cool. I think it is. It would be, right? And I think, you know, you, you, we haven't thought about this, but if, if you look a little uh, deeper, and I think, sorry, I mean, the world is starting to think about this, Michael. You know, that, you know, we've always had these sort of non-perishable foods and, sure. you know, grains that sort of are moving. And perhaps we were all used to sort of all the perishables kind of being in the vicinity, right? So we weren't really worrying about it so much, right? But that's not true any longer, you know? I mean, we're eating kiwis and all sorts of stuff, which we never ate in India before, right? They're coming from far afield. And how do you manage perishable supply chains, right? Right. It's, it's, it's a different beast. 
Yeah, and uh, so fundamentally, technology has a large role to play in that as we go along. And, uh, you know, we're seeing Captain Fresh is one of the companies in that space sort of addressing that. If you can take the technology to create the efficiencies in the supply chain, and like you said, if that fish or that kiwi doesn't get on the boat or doesn't get on the truck, when you know it's going to fail, then it becomes, it adds to this sustainability. Again, this term has been co-opted in so many different ways, right? But because you can then take that kiwi and feed it to somebody on the farm or take that fish and make sure that it's fed back into the ecosystem as opposed to just rotting on a truck somewhere. It's better for the environment. It's better for the world, but it's also better economically for people. Like everything works together, right? It is, it is, it is, right? So, so much of the cost when you look at it, especially in Asia, right? Where, you know, I know in the West, they're much more consolidated farms and they're managed differently. In Asia, there are small farms and that's the reality of the ground. And, you know, you're trying to connect. It's Sorry, I'm going to be a physicist, Michael. Go for it. <laughs> so it's a multi-body problem where you have lots of small farms and lots of other small consumers, and you're trying to actually make that connection as much efficiently as you possibly can. And that's just something that's super important. So this is another really interesting thing to me. In the United States, you know, farms have been consolidated through Archer Daniels, Mid- Midland, and other companies like this, right? So you have mechanized farming. Now, that hasn't happened to the same extent here in Asia for multiple reasons, not the least of which is just that the land is not configured in a way where there are large swaths of land that can be farmed. Particularly in Japan, you have these tiny rice farms. The same thing happens everywhere here. But for you, since what you're building is a global investment business, and again, this gets back to the Middlebury thing, because now you know how to talk to people outside of your realm, right? When you talk to them, are they surprised by the difference in the structure of the agricultural system? And does it make it easier, harder, more interesting for them to invest in those businesses because they don't see the same thing in their day-to-day environment? Does that make sense? No, the two sets of people, Michael, it makes sense what you're asking. There are people who don't know, and then they're like, oh, this is really out there. I can't deal with it. Right. Right. And then there are people who know, right? And they understand the value of uh, what you could possibly do here. Yeah, right? fair enough. So, um, you know, I think that's normal in everything. But you do need to dig a bit deeper, right? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, we've also, and again, back specifically to agriculture, you know, it is a, it is something that uh, is a food security issue, right? So governments are involved in this whole space, right? Essentially, there's a whole, you know, we, we, we have all this talk about how, you know, people are beneficiaries and farmers are beneficiaries, right? But, you know, they're actually running a business, a very risky business to feed us, right? Is sort of what they're doing. So, um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of baggage around the sector. So I think, uh, you know, but the people who kind of understand the sector know very well as to what the opportunities here are. So. They do, but at some level, right, the way funds are structured, you have yeah. the LPs and the GPs, right? And the GPs make yeah. the decisions on where the funds get invested, but they have to explain it to their LPs. And sometimes the yeah. limited partners are university administrators who may not have yeah. the same global view that the GPs have in the funds. I would just find those conversations really interesting. No, they are. And, you know, Michael, we started this journey at about, you know, 2013, where I, I think everybody looked at us as we were a bit crazy. We were going to put in small check into agriculture right? Uh, and told, look, you know, do what you want, but just don't go there. Right? And I think <laughs> it's a different beast today, basically. So it's a completely different beast today. And, uh, you know, you actually have global interest. And I think people realize that, you know, I mean, it's, it's a significant economy globally. 
for sure. Right? And uh, if you want to put your dollars to work, uh, you better kind of understand that there is something to invest in here. And I think the second leg that has obviously grown over the last seven, eight years uh, is the climate impact of all of this, right? And I think uh, both those actually go to drive much, much higher, both LP and GP interest in this area. Do you feel like Asia is or should be leading the way in investing in climate impact, particularly, I mean, do some, do whatever math you want, but particularly with a third of the world's carbon sinks being in Asia or in Southeast Asia, and this idea that we have to maintain them or make them more effective, not just from their existence, but how we invest in things that impact them as well? No, I totally believe that, Michael, but, uh, you know, I think Asia, um, you know, uh, the consumer, not acceptance is not the right word, what should I say? Uh, the push for asking for sustainability, yeah. right, is limited in Asia, right? So I think uh, that doesn't help. Uh, but, you know, I don't see how you're going to address any of the issues globally without addressing Asia. Right. So I think uh, perhaps it starts. And, uh, you know, the way we've seen it play out in India is that, you know, of course, Asia is part of export markets. Right. So, you know, people in Europe, et cetera, are asking for much, much more uh, sustainability in supply chains as to how things are being done. So as an exporter, you need to comply with a lot of that. And then that starts trickling down to create a market in the country and people pushing for it in the country. Right. So I have no doubt that this is table stakes right, going forward, right? Uh, I think the question just comes into, and, and you know, as one guy told me, right, I mean, uh, no one's gonna pay premium for this. This, you know, these solutions have to sort of come in and actually be able to do things, uh, you know, in cost structures that will work, right? Because you can't say, you can't eat because that thing was not sustainably grown, right? That's not gonna fly. Right. But how do we get the innovations out there that allow us to sort of meet the price points that are necessary for everybody to have a nutritious meal at the same time reduce the climate impact? And Asia, I think, will be the leader on that. So do we feel like and there's so many things to unpack here, right? So the development of the economy in Asia, and it's very, very varied, right? I mean, even in Southeast yeah, yeah. Asia alone, yeah. Yeah. Indonesia is not Vietnam, Vietnam is not the Philippines, the Philippines is in Thailand, and we know all of this. And India itself, right, there are different pockets of of development for the economy everywhere. But at scale, it's still early on in the development of the economy. Very right? It's very early, right? But this is why if you go back to the early 1900s in the United States, to the late 1800s, you know, the, the uh, what's the word? The focus on pollution or sustainability was zero. It's like, I'm building a big steel mill. I don't care if it yeah. runs off into the river in Pittsburgh or all three of the rivers in Pittsburgh, we're making steel here kind of thing. So the fact that that's happening in Asia today shouldn't be shocking to anybody, but it also means that there's a much larger investment opportunity, right? Because today we're luckier because information travels around faster, yes, right? Yes, yes, I was going to say that, yeah. Go ahead, yeah, so I think that the investment so, opportunity so, is massive. You know, uh, it is no surprise, as economies emerge, they want to invest and get the best for their people, yeah. and they're not really worried about clean or sustainability and all of that good stuff, right? I mean, the immediate stuff is the wealth you know, GDP, I want to sort of put it that way. But I think this is not the time that industrialization happened in the West. I think there's a much larger awareness, Absolutely. right? Yep. And I think there are many other tools that we have today, right? That yep. didn't exist back then, right? That can 
you know, let the development happen, but let the development happen in a more sustainable manner. I mean, let me let me take a switch gears a little bit and let's talk about sort of uh, electric vehicles. Please. Yeah, essentially, right? And, uh, you know, you've seen China take a huge leap in being able to sort of do that, yeah. right? I mean, it's the battery manufacturer of the world today in many ways, right? So, you know, in India, you know, where the mobility needs are so very different, right? Where we're talking about two-wheelers, three-wheelers, you know, I mean, you know, we're not talking about Teslas in everybody's hand. That's really not what's sort of going to happen, no. right? I think the innovations, the solutions that need to come up to address the particular needs and we have the tools today present a different opportunity. Yeah. And I think that's what's really exciting in Asia because it's a different market. It's about, you know, there are different markets, there are different solutions. There are some things that cross borders, others that don't, but there is this richness to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like to say that there's never been a better time to be growing up in Asia than it is today, just because the opportunities are so large, but also because the access to those opportunities is also so diverse. Yeah. No? Yeah. No, they're absolutely diverse, you know? So when we started our journey at Angkor, you know, uh, this, uh, this all sounds really stupid now, yeah? But the, the mobile phone wasn't a ubiquitous thing, yeah? yeah? Yeah. So I told you we started with, you know, sort of investing in agriculture. And I remember being out on some farms in Maharashtra and, you know, you, you had one of those old Nokia, you know, non-smartphones. I have uh, one but, still in my, ho in my home. Right. Okay. I have it. Um, you know, and, you know, we worried about whether people would have this or, you know, all of those kind of things, you know, how would the, the communicate with the farmer, all of these good things, right? This is such a... You know, I mean, a conversation you would never have today. No. Right? Because no. it is so ubiquitous, happened in the space of a year, year and a half. Right. Right? And we're not talking about, uh, you know, uh, non-smartphones. We're talking about data, right? I learned about Telegram in a corn or a, no, I think it was a sunflower seed oil, oil, uh, field. Yeah, where we were all on WhatsApp and the guy's like, dude, this doesn't work. There's a limit to the number of people use Telegram, right? So, um, you know, it, it is ubiquitous. So you see the pace of that change, um, you know, and I think there's many more things to sort of come. Um, Don't you find this kind of work fun? Sorry, I can hear it in your voice. Do you know what I mean? Like just these stories of like being in the corn seed field and talking about WhatsApp and tell like it's so much fun. It's hard work for sure. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. We already talked about the day and night thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I already talked about the joy too, Michael. Yeah, so no, I know I, that. I know that. But it's it so is. fun, no? It is. It is. And, you know, you see those changes. You see the entrepreneurs making those changes. You see the fight, right? Yeah. You see the companies, uh, you know, the phoenixes rising out of the ashes when you sort of written them out yeah. and all of that is just you know just reaffirms the fact that there is so much that can be done and there is so much that is being done uh, and you know i think lucky to be at the ringside view of some of that definitely it's so joyful you remind me of a conversation that i had a week or so ago with this woman Ines shiab she's building a company in europe called gaia family and what they do is they build insurance and financial products around helping people with fertility and infertility. And 
you know, the success for them, it's multi-layered, right? But one of the successes for them is a full-term pregnancy to birth. Mm, mm, it's hard not to be joyful for them as well right. when it works, right? So, but I can hear that in your voice too, when you birth these companies and they actually grow and sustain. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. You know, and they, you know, you'll see them sort of uh, beast to contend with. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah and, uh, I love it. You know, pushed against the status quo, right? So yeah. as to how things are being done. So I want to go back to this too. Through my InsurTech podcast, right? And I'm sure you're very familiar with insurance and InsurTech, particularly in India. I've had so many conversations with Indian entrepreneurs, either in India or outside of India, but from India. There's so much innovation happening in that space. But I think that what's happening in India is filtering out to the rest of the world. And I'm curious, when you travel now, again, different from when you started this almost 10 years ago, is the feeling and knowledge about what's happening in the innovation space in India different than it was 10 years ago? Is it filtering out to the rest of the world so that they know, or are they just looking at the Indian leaders in the United States and thinking they're all coming here? No, as no, to absolutely. No, that, that is not true anymore, right? Basically. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, obviously, we've exported uh, people for a while. Yeah. Right. The startups in India have come of age. Right. Yeah. If you've looked at the last two years, there's been a frenzy of unicorns being born and the race of unicorns being born in India. So I think, uh, you know, I, I don't think India is an odd destination for an investor anymore. Right. There is a lot of that sort of is happening. I would say the journey and I think there's I like to think of this as a journey 2.0. I think there was a journey 1.0 in which uh, India was actually kind of, you know, sort of the back office uh, kind of solutions for a lot of uh, companies in the West. Yeah, we right? brought so a ton of consultancy, IT all this talent. stuff. Yeah. It was a labor arbitrage, if I can yep. say that, it's because, the, yep. you know, price. I don't think India is a price arbitrage destination anymore. <laughs> you know, so we keep talking internally about where is the price arbitrage <laughs> opportunity not in India anymore, especially in tech. No. Right, where you know that there's a dearth of tech talent vis a vis the local needs for the tech talent here. Yeah. But I think that I will go back to something that I said. I think that what you're seeing now is solutions that are very uh, contextual, right? These are happening in software, these are happening in actual hardware products that are contextual to the Indian ecosystem, right? Entrepreneurs, we have a large enough domestic market, so entrepreneurs are starting to address that. But I think they also realize along the way that there's a much larger part of the globe that they can address with their solutions. Absolutely. So you are seeing some of that, uh, you know, going out. It's already started. The journey has started to look at companies and they're across multi-different geographies, taking their solutions to that. And I am uh, optimistic that we will see a lot more of that. So it, it's the 2.0 of India to the world. Yeah. And again, like you said, I'm so happy to be, to have my own ringside seats on what's happening here. Yeah. I'm not yeah. investing like you are, but again, I've done a thousand sure. conversations like this in the last few years and I yeah. feel like I feel involved. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. neat. I want to so, end uh, on... We, Go ahead, sorry. No, I, I'm just saying that, you know, we, we've seen our companies, you know, I mean, we were talking about agriculture earlier. Yep. I think it's a very local thing, right, as to how it sort of works. So one of the first companies we invested is in 56 countries across the globe, right? And obviously, you know, their technology works with small farms and, you know, small farm supply chains, Obviously, there's a need for that, right, across the globe. So that those are the kind of things that we see sort of happening. I love it. I want to talk about um, 
women in technology. I want to talk about STEM a little bit. And I want to talk about a woman. I spoke to a woman in Singapore literally a couple of days ago and encouraged her actually to do a little bit more. But the Femtech Association of Singapore, Femtech Association of Asia, maybe you can talk a little bit about that in the context of some of the founders in which you've invested, particularly as it relates to STEM. Yeah, you know, we have two women STEM founders and companies that are doing absolutely amazingly well. One has a, you know, AI solution looking at breast cancer and just actually got an FDA approval uh, for that to roll out. Uh, we have another woman, she has a synthetic biology company, right, that is uh, producing uh, feed food uh, as the inputs and one of the most cutting edge things that is out there. You know, right. I think there's a lot, you know, uh, women have no ceilings. No, and definitely not. And there was no intention to say that women had ceilings. So yeah. this is Niramai and String Bio, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Niramai and String Bio, both of which are headed by women. Yeah. Uh, women scientists, I should add. I love it. Right. And uh, who've taken these companies from, you know, I mean, Gita from Niramai came to us, she left Xerox as a researcher with this thing that she'd been playing with at Xerox to say, look, I really want to build something out of it. And, you know, three, four years later, she's FDA approved, she's CE approved, she's got about 55,000 women who have gone through screenings with a new modality, right? That is, you know, it's an amazing journey as to what what is sort of getting built. The great thing is there's so much more growth available in both of those places Yeah, as absolutely, well. yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really want to thank you for doing this. Dr. Ritu Verma, a co-founder and managing partner at Anchor Capital. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you, Michael. Really enjoyed it. Good to be chatting on your show.